Amen. Well, we are uh, on the second week of a three-week series um, on intimacy with God. And um, last week we looked at um, this idea of the definition of intimacy, just kind of an intro. Um, And we saw that intimacy uh, can mean two different things. Intimacy through knowledge of mind. Uh, And last week we used the illustration of Justin Bieber and how there was somebody who uh, knew a lot about Justin Bieber. They had the knowledge of Justin Bieber. Uh, They knew all about him, but they didn't have a relationship with him. Uh, And we saw that that really uh, intimacy, the second definition, intimacy through relationship, is the intimacy that God wants in our lives. And so we saw that through the life of Paul, and how Paul was looking at the world through a set of lenses that, that taught him all about the knowledge of God, but never gave him relationship with God. And finally, Jesus had to knock him uh, on the head on the road to Damascus and blind him so that he could get new lenses to see God, who is a God who is passionate about a relationship with him. And so we see that intimacy begins with relationship with Jesus. It begins with a friendship with Him. It begins with a life that's more about the knowledge that we attain and more about the relationship that's day in and day out. And so what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at what that relationship looks like. Um, And so we're going to look at it through, uh, through the word worship. Um, Because worship really is what that relationship looks like and how we can have more intimacy with Christ is if we have a proper understanding of worship. Now, what we commonly think of when we say the word or we hear the word worship, um, uh, the first thing we commonly uh, hear uh, when we hear the word worship is gathering. It's this, right? When you think worship, you think worship service. You think gathering. You think coming together. And, and that is a, a, a good thing to think that way. The Bible is pretty clear on that. See in Acts chapter 2, verse 46 and 47. says they worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper. They shared their meals with great joy and generosity. All the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who are being saved. So, gathering is a part of worship. Um, It is a part of the biblical definition of worship. And and when we think worship, we think gathering. It is a common thing. The second thing we think of is we think singing, right? Is that uh, we just sang worship. We just did worship right here. Uh, We sang three songs, and we define that typically as worship. Unfortunately for a lot of us, that's the only thing we think of when we hear the word worship, is singing. Now, singing is a form of worship. It is an expression of worship. And, and that's true even in the Word. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 to 20. Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, and making music to the Lord in your hearts. And give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, singing is a small piece of worship, okay? But unfortunately for a lot of us, we think that the whole pie of worship is singing. And it's not. It is a part of it. It's a small sliver of the pie. But it's not all of it. Sometimes we think of our gathering time, our singing time, and we think that worship is also hearing the word, the preaching time. And that is a part of worship. 
1 Timothy 4.13, Paul says, Until I get there, Timothy, until I can be with you, focus on reading the Scriptures to the church, encouraging the believers, and teaching them the Word. So preaching is a part of worship. But it, again, it's just a part of worship. And so Paul defines worship for us. And what we look at when Paul defines worship is our title today. Intimacy is worship is our life. Worship is life. That, that's, that's who we are. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and if you're walking towards intimacy, then if you can have a proper understanding of worship, and what worship is, you will have an incredible intimate relationship with Jesus. And so let's define it. Let's walk through it. Let's see what it looks like. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul gives the definition. He says this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. For this is your spiritual act of worship. 1 John 4, 9, and 10, we see that Jesus, uh, John is saying that Jesus came and He first loved us. Not that we first loved Him, but that He first loved us. And He gave Himself as a sacrifice or a ransom for our sins. And so He first loved us. And so in His quest of loving us, in His quest of establishing relationship with us, then... It's our responsibility to say, okay, God, you love me. How do I love you back? How do I say I love you too? Anybody ever told you they love you? It's the worst thing ever in a dating relationship, isn't it? Girls, this guy comes around and he says, hey, baby. I love you. And, and Thank you. And and here's the thing. Here's what he's looking for, right? Here's what he's looking for. He's not just saying he loves you. He's looking for more, isn't he? He's wanting to hear something back from you. Okay, the worst thing you can say, girls, is, Oh, okay, me me too. Or, Oh, thank you. (laughs) That's not the best thing to hear, right? I mean, what you're looking for when you tell somebody they love you is what? I love you too. I love you back. And when Jesus is coming to this earth, and when He came to this earth, and He died on the cross for our sins, and He rose again three days later, He's saying all that to say, I love you. And He wants us to say what? I love you too. How do I do that? It's that, that we offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. God, I love you by dying to myself. God, God, I love you by offering my body in front of you. And God, you are the boss of my life, and you're the Lord of my life. And God, we are here among you. The Holy Spirit's often uh, described as a wind. <laughs> so that's a beautiful picture. That's a beautiful picture of what God's wanting to do, alright? It can be distracting, but don't be distracted, alright? Uh, Romans chapter 12, he says that. Now, 
Here's the beautiful thing about what Paul does, is he gives us a great picture of some of the acts of worship, some of the things that we can do uh, all throughout Romans chapter 12. So I just want to just, I want to touch these. I don't want to camp on any of these, uh, but I want us to see, because you go from Romans 12.1 to Romans 12.2, and we're just going to look at all of the things that Paul can, that we define as worship, right? Verse 2, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. That's worship. See? That's worship. See, it's bigger than, than singing. It's bigger than a gathering. It's, it's bigger than preaching. That, that's worship. Don't copy the behavior and patterns of this world. If you don't copy the behavior and patterns of this world, that's worship. If you allow God to transform you into a new person by changing the way you think, that's worship. Isn't that great? I mean, we're, we're about to be, our mind is about to be expanded on the definition of worship. And we begin to understand that offering our, our lives as a, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, starts with not copying the behavior and customs of this world. Starts with asking God to transform our mind. That's worship. Verse 3. Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you're better than you really are. Be honest in, eva- in your evaluation of yourselves. Measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. Guess what? That's worship. That's worship. Not thinking that we're better than we really are is, is, is worship. It's how we can worship Him. It's how we can offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Verse 4, just as our bodies have many parts and each part is a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. That's worship. Understanding unity, understanding that we all have different gifts, understanding that we all together advance the kingdom of God together. We belong together. We belong to this body of Christ. And some of you are the hand, and some of you are the mouth, and some of you are the ears, and some of you are the feet. And we understand that we are all part of the body of Christ. Verse 6, In His grace God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you're a teacher, teach well. If your gift is your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift of showing kindness to others, do it gladly. We've been given gifts, and when we use our gifts, that's worship. It's not just Edmund up here using his gift of playing the guitar and singing and songwriting. That's not just, but that's his gift. And that's what he's doing to lead us in worship of singing. But here's the thing. Some of you guys are incredible gift givers. Some of you guys love to serve others. That's worship. You may not be on stage, but that's, that's worship. Paul's given us this definition of worship. What can it look like? What can it be? Verse 9, the first part. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. And loving other people, that's worship. Second part of verse 9. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. When we're bothered by sin, that's worship. That's a life of worship. 
Verse 10. Love each other with genuine affection. That's worship. Verse uh, 10, the second part. And take delight in honoring each other. When we honor each other, that's worship. When we consider others as better than ourselves, that's worship. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. That's worship. You wake up at 6 in the morning so that you can have a relationship with Christ and start the day out in His Word, or 5 in the morning, or 4 in the morning, and you're not being lazy in that moment, that's worship. Whenever you go for an entire week to an island, to a bunch of people that you don't know real well, to serve them and serve their children, like a lot of people did last week, that's worship. It's hard work. You can't be lazy when you do that. That's worship. Rejoice in our confident hope. That's worship when you rejoice and praise Him. Be patient in troubles. That's worship. And when we pray, keep on praying. That's worship. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. That's worship. When you serve and meet the needs of others. When somebody's mom died and you go, you take food to them, that's worship. When somebody has a flat tire and you stop and you help them fix the flat tire, that, that's worship. You say, Jeff, I don't understand that. How can that be worship? It's worship because it's exercising who Jesus is through us to people. It's us saying to God, God, I'm offering my body as a living sacrifice, so do with it what you will. Do through me what you will. And when you do through me what you will, that's my act of worship. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. That's worship. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. That's worship. You're not worshiping that person. You're worshiping Jesus. And when Jesus can move through you to celebrate when people are happy and to mourn and weep with those who weep, that's being Jesus to them. And that's worship. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of other ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. Humility is worship. Being humble is worship. Verse 17, Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. That's worship. Now, let me just stop right here. Some of you are peacekeepers, and some of you are peacemakers, and the Bible wants you to be peacemakers. Not peacekeepers. Say, so what's the difference? Peacekeepers tend to not say anything just so everyone around them can be happy. You know people like this? And so somebody offends you, or somebody says something against you, or somebody says something that really just makes you mad, and you really want to tell them, and you really want to share that with them in a really angry way, and you say, oh no, I'm just going to keep the peace. 
and yet a root of bitterness begins to build in your heart and you start, you know, I don't like them anyway, I don't really like, I'm going to just smile, I'm going to just keep the peace and I'm around them. That's peacekeeping. Peacemaking is going to them and saying, hey, I love you and I don't want anything to be in the way of our friendship. I don't want anything to be in the way of us because we know Christ and I want to make sure that we have peace between us. So what you said the other day kind of hurt my feelings. And, and I, I just want to talk through that just a little bit so that we, can, we don't have anything between us. See the difference between peacemaking and peacekeeping? Live at peace, he says. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. When we understand how to rightly solve conflict with other brothers and sisters in Christ or other people, that's worship. Verse 19, Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the Scriptures say, I will take revenge, I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. That's worship. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. That's worship. And doing this, you will heat burning coals of shame on their heads. Verse 21, finally, don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. That's worship. Paul does a great thing of giving us this incredible picture of worship. Helping us to understand that worship is not just a gathering. It's not just singing. It's not just hearing the word of God. Worship is our life. And when we begin to understand worship, we begin to understand who He is. And who He desires us to be. And how we can have a relationship with Him. And how we can be a vessel that Jesus can come. The Holy Spirit can come and live through us to touch the lives of other people. For His glory. And for His name. I hope you're getting this idea of worship. I hope it's expanding your knowledge of worship. But here's the thing that's a problem with worship. I want to illustrate it with a story. And I shared this at our uh, Salt and Journey camp. Um, but I want to illustrate this with this story. The Philistines had taken the Ark of God. And King David was ready to take it back. And he wanted to move the Ark of God into where it, where it needed to be, and that was in the city of Jerusalem, in the center of the Israelites. Because the Ark of God represented the very presence of God. God said, I will dwell on the Ark and in the Ark. And so uh, what would happen is that um, is before the Philistines captured the Ark, they, the people would follow the Ark and wherever the Ark was is where they would go and they would follow the presence of God and, and the Levites, the priests, would, would carry the Ark where Moses would help them to go and Moses and God were talking and Moses would lead and the, and the, and the Levites would carry the Ark. And so... We have this ark now that's in Philistine hands. And David said, no, it's time to go get it. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1, Then again, then David again gathered all the elite troops in Israel, 30,000 in all. He led them to Baalah of Judah to bring back the ark of God, which bears the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are actually on the ark. They placed the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from Abinadab's house 
which is on a hill, Uzzah and Ahio, Abinadab's sons, were guiding the cart as it left the house, carrying the ark of God. Ahio walked in front of the ark. Alright, so let's stop right here. Here's what's happening. They go to this house. They find the ark. They pick the ark up with the poles that are in place. And they put the ark on a cart. And it's being pulled by a team of oxen. Okay? You've got two brothers. You've got Ahio, who's leading the team of oxen. And you've got Uzzah, who's in the back, walking behind the the ark that's on the cart. Okay? Now... That's the situation that's happening. Now, verse 5. David and all the people of Israel were celebrating before the Lord, singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments like lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. But when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stumbled. Okay, now let me just paint you a picture. The threshing floor was basically a bedrock. It was rocks that they placed as a foundation uh, to lead up uh, to something. It may have been an old building and all the all the, the walls were down. We don't know what it was. We know that um, it's like today whenever you go to a sidewalk. I mean, you go from the grass to the sidewalk and sometimes there's just a little bitty, just a little bit of a step there. And um, many of us, including myself, have turned our ankles on those <laughs> little things. But that's what the oxen were dealing with. They were on the they were on the dirt. You had the oxen. You had the stone foundation. And when the oxen went to step up on the stone foundation, they stumbled. And when they're teamed up together, when one stumbles, they both stumble. And so they kind of went down to their little knees and they tried to get back up. And when that happened, Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark of God. So Uzzah, remember, he's in the back. He's behind the cart. The oxen stumble and the, the ark is about to fall off the cart. And so Uzzah reaches out his hand to, and he touches the ark to stable the ark from falling off the cart. Then verse 7, the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah and God struck Uzzah dead because of this. So Uzzah died right there beside the ark of God. David was angry because the Lord's anger had burst out against Uzzah. And he named that place Perez Uzzah, which means to burst out against him, as it's called today. Let me just kind of give you a picture of David. David's out here in front of the ark. David's already up on the threshing floor. He didn't trip on the threshing floor. He understood it to be a step. He stepped up on the threshing floor, and they're celebrating, and they're having a party, and they're worshiping, saying, yes, the presence of God is coming, and we're excited about it, and we're singing songs, and they're just leading this whole procession of the ark, and all of a sudden, David turns around, the oxen stumble, and, and Uzzah dies on the spot because he touched the ark. Can you imagine what happened? I mean, there's celebration, 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 and all of a sudden, nothing. Everyone gets quiet. The instruments stop. The cymbals stop. The guitars stop. And David turns around and he goes back. And he finds Uzzah laying on the ground dead. And David's angry. Verse 9, David was now afraid of the Lord. And he asked, how can I ever bring the ark of the Lord back into my care? So David decided not to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David. Instead, he took it to the home of Obed-Edom of Gath. 
The ark of the Lord remained there in Obed-Edom's house for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his entire household. Then King David was told, The Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's household and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went there and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with a great celebration. And you go, well, how did that happen? Well, here's how it happened. We see it in 1 Chronicles 15, what David decided to do. In those three months, this is what David did. David now built several buildings for himself in the city of David. And he also prepared a place for the ark of God and set up a special tent for it. Then he commanded, listen, no one except the Levites may carry the ark of God. The Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to serve Him forever. Where did he get that? He got that in Numbers chapter 4. It says this, But way back in history, way before David, Numbers 4 said, This is how you are to move the ark. This is how you are to remove, you are to move the camp. The camp will be ready to move when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the sacred articles. And the Kohathites will come and carry these things to the next destination. The Kohathites were an elite of elite, Levite, high priest group of guys. But they must not touch the sacred objects or they will die. So these are the things in the tabernacle that the Kohathites must carry. So here's what David began to understand. David's anger was, yes, anger a little bit at God for killing Uzzah on the spot. But more than that, David's anger came at himself that he didn't move the ark the way God wanted him to move the ark. The way he, was, he knew to move the ark. The way the Bible instructed him to move the ark. He didn't move it that way. He put it on a cart. You know where they were supposed to move it? They were supposed to move it by the Levitical priests. The priests were supposed to move it. So you had this ark, and you had a pole that ran underneath the ark. And you had a second pole that ran on the front part underneath the ark. And then you had two long poles that ran the length of the ark. And you have a priest at the front, two at the front carrying it. Two in the middle carrying it. Two behind them carrying it. Two in the back carrying it. And those priests were supposed to transport the ark that way. Not on a cart pulled by oxen. So David made a mistake. And he realized it. So verse 13. After the men who were carrying the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. And you go, oh wow, that's interesting. Well, let's look a little bit further at what that might look like. So, you've got these dudes, these Levitical priests, and they're around this ark. And I just want to just... Let's just jump into Jeff's world just for a minute, okay? Just jump into my head, alright? Because if you were to get these... If you're a Levitical priest, alright? You're a Levitical priest. And you know the last guy who tried to move the ark touched it and died... You're a little nervous. Right? I mean, rightly so, you're a little nervous. So, what happens? All six, all, all of them right here. They go to grab. Got the guy in the back. Alright, here we go. We're grabbing it. Guy in the front. It's like, alright guys, you ready? Ready? Everybody ready? Alright, here we go. On three. Okay, ready? One, two, and you hear the guy in the back go, whoa, 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 whoa. On three or three, then go. 
Because if we go on one, two, three, or is it one, two, three, up? Because I don't want to pick up and then it slide towards him and kill him. And I don't want him to pick up and it slide towards me. So we all kind of need to be in agreement here. Is it on three or three, then go? Uh, okay, good, good question. Um, yeah, on, uh, let's just on three. On three, okay, so one, two, three, we pick, all right? Everybody good? On three, one, two, three. Not one, two, three, up. One, two, up, okay? So one, two, three. Okay, everybody good? Okay, everybody's good. All right. Ready? One, two, three. Everybody good? Everybody good? No one's dead? Okay, good. All right. We got to go forward now, guys. You know that, right? Okay. All right, here we go. We're going to go forward. Ready? First step. Whoa, 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 whoa. Back here in the back. Right foot or left? Because I don't want to, like, take this awkward step and then the, the, I accidentally hit my hip on the arc and then I'm dead, you know? I mean, let's just figure this out, guys. Okay, uh, left foot. Left foot first, okay? Left foot. Okay, everybody, left foot. Okay, ready? We're going to go left, okay? Left on three. On three, not three, then go. Okay, ready? Left on three. One, two, left. One step. Everybody good? Good. Okay, good. Right step. Second step. Go. Third step. Fourth step. Fifth step. Sixth step. We didn't die. What does the Bible say? After the men who were carrying the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, they said it and celebrated. Yes, Lord, you didn't kill us. David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. They're having fun. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might, wearing a priestly garment. Why? Because he was obedient to God, and he didn't move it the wrong way this time. He moved it the right way, and all the guys who were carrying it were Levitical priests. They were of the the tribe that they were supposed to be of. They took six steps. None of them died, so let's celebrate. David danced before the Lord with all his might, wearing a priestly garment. So David and all the people of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and the blowing of ram's horns. But as the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Michael, which is Saul's daughter, the daughter of Saul, which, that's who Saul gave Michael to David to be married, okay? So they're, uh, they're married. When she looked down from her window... She saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she was filled with contempt for him. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the special tent David had prepared for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. And when he had finished his sacrifices, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. Verse 19. Then he gave to every Israelite man and woman in the crowd a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins. Then all the people returned to their homes. Now, let me just kind of let you in on something here. A cake of dates was an aphrodisiac. If you don't know what that is, ask somebody later. David was basically saying to all of the people, go, enjoy one another. Enjoy your spouse. Go celebrate, for this is peace. The presence of God is here, and you have nothing to worry about. Enjoy one another. Go home. Return home. And so David's thinking, I'm going to go return home, and I'm going to go enjoy my spouse. And so he walks home. 
And he returns home to bless his own family. Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him, his wife. And she said in disgust, How distinguished the king of Israel looked today, shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls like any vulgar person might do. David retorted to Michael, I was dancing before the Lord, who chose me above your father and all of his family. He appointed me as the leader of Israel, the people of the Lord, so I celebrate before the Lord. Yes, and I am willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. But those servant girls you mentioned will indeed think I am distinguished. Michael, the daughter of Saul, remained childless throughout her entire life. He said, Jeff, what in the world does this have to do with the first part of what you taught? (laughs) What in the world does this have to do with worship? You know what it has to do with worship? David was worshiping. David had given everything for this. David had sacrificed his life on the altar for this. A man died for this. He was bringing the presence of God into the promised land, into Jerusalem. And everything he was doing was worship. And then he's dancing before the Lord and he's celebrating and he's singing. And he is worshiping with all of his might, with every part, with all that he is. He's worshiping God. Then what happened? Michael looked down in disgust. See, here's the reality of people. You're either going to be David or Michael. You're either going to be David or Michael. You're either going to be David who says, you know what? I don't care what anybody else thinks. In fact, I'm willing to be humiliated if that means that my whole life is offered on a, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, for this is my spiritual act of worship. No matter what happens, no matter how I can worship, no matter how I can have the Holy Spirit flow through me in my intimate relationship with Him, no matter how that looks and what that looks like, as long as I'm doing that, if I look humiliated, if I look like I'm embarrassing somebody, I don't care. Or you're Michael. Can you believe they would do that? You see somebody in worship service, in a church service, and they're raising their hands. Look at them. They're just drawing attention to themselves. Can you believe that? Somebody's praying over lunch in a restaurant. I can't. Look at them. I mean, they're causing such a scene. They're praying. Don't they know they're in Vancouver? Can't pray in public. That's Michael. It's Michael. And you're either David or you're Michael when it comes to worship. You either, you know what, I don't care. God, my relationship is strong with you. My intimacy with you is real. And God, I need you to flow through me so that you can show me how you want me to be. I offer my body today as a holy and living sacrifice. 
God, I want to be pleasing to you. God, cleanse me. Make me your servant. Make me your hands and feet. Because I know that's how worship is defined. That's what it means to truly worship you. That's what it means to be in intimacy with you. And God, I don't care what other people think. That's David. That's David. You're either David or you're Michael. Who are you today? Who are you today? Let's pray.